Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am recording this podcast from my very empty and perhaps very echoey new office at the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies in Freiburg, Germany, where I will be spending the months of June and July working on some new projects here in Germany and trying to finish up some old projects before I head back to the University of Pennsylvania and return to teaching in the fall. So I have been a bit uh, busy for the last couple of weeks. I have not uh, had much time to attend to the podcast, but I really did want to get back to reading the third part of Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. And this is an essay that I started reading uh, a while ago. It was published in 1918, but it's actually the republication of some of Alexandra Kollontai's work from before the revolution. And as I've said in earlier episodes, this piece is really primarily concerned with how to organize women within a workers' movement without doing so separately. So basically, one of the biggest critiques of feminism at this particular time was that feminists were dividing the working class and that in order to overcome capitalism, in order to create a new workers' world, you needed to have men and women working together. But of course, the problem with that is that sometimes men and women have different interests. And particularly at the time that Kollontai was writing, they had very different interests, primarily because women were overwhelmingly responsible for social reproduction. They were responsible for the family, for the children, for the home. And so men's concerns were very different from women's concerns. I also think it's really important to emphasize that women at this particular period of time, particularly in a place like Russia, were relatively less educated. Many of them were illiterate. They were certainly not as politically radicalized as men. And so people like Kolontai and Clara Zetkin here in Germany believed that there needed to be sort of special agitation, a special section within the larger party that dealt specifically with women's issues and women's rights and understood that women needed a different kind of, you know, propaganda or activism for them to be radicalized, to bring them into the movement because the kind of information and the kind of agitation that was being done for men really kind of spoke specifically to men's concerns in the workplace and men's concerns with exploitation in the factories, but didn't really address the specific needs of women. So these two articles that are republished in 1918 are a way of Kolontai reflecting on what has already been done in Europe to bring women into the larger socialist movement and how that can be used as an example and reflection on what can be done in this new thing at the time in 1918 called the Soviet Union. So I'm just going to pick up where I left off uh, two episodes ago. This is now part three of Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. 
The peculiarity of these methods consists in the fact that while not breaking off general links between the general workers and women workers movement, while welding both wings into one in the process of struggle, bringing them together under the banner of general class tasks and demands, they nevertheless provide for a separate structure for agitation, specifically designed to cater for the working class women. Separation has a double aim. On the one hand, these intra-party collectives commissions, women's workers' bureaus, and so on, must carry out special agitational work adapted to the level of the questions women want to have answered. Their task is to recruit members among the mass of women who have a low level of consciousness to educate women workers' consciousness, to raise it to the level of the rest of the party members, to move women into the arena of the revolutionary struggle. On the other hand, these collectives give women workers the possibility of putting forward and defending in practical ways those interests which touch women most of all. Motherhood, the protection of children, the rate set for children's and women's labor, and reforms in housekeeping, and so on. It follows that the formation of groups of women workers within the party, on the one hand, lightens the task of attracting into the movement the broad masses of less aware women, those with whom one has to speak a different language than with men. And on the other hand, it is an opportunity to concentrate the party's attention on the special requirements of the women proletariat. This was the conclusion that the Western comrades gradually arrived at. This way of working with women has been adopted by almost all parties. In Austria from 1908, in England from 1906, in the United States from 1908, in the Scandinavian countries, in Belgium and Holland from the beginning of the 20th century, in Switzerland, in Finland, and in France, Special collectives of women socialists exist everywhere, carrying on agitational work with women workers and focusing the attention of the Workers' Party on that part of the socialist program, which affects working-class women's interests most closely. And then here, there's a long section where Kolontai actually goes in and lists all the various numbers and the growth of women within the party in different European countries between 1907 and 1910. And those two dates correspond with the first Socialist Women's Conference, which was held in 1907 in Stuttgart, Germany, and then the second International Socialist Women's Conference, which was held in Copenhagen in 1910, which I've talked about on this podcast before. So if you're interested in the actual numbers, you can look back at this article, but I'm not going to read them because it's just sort of a list of numbers of how many women are organized within different European socialist parties. So now this is Kolontai again. The basis for these organizational successes is undoubtedly an objective economic factor. The rapid growth of female industrial labor which is particularly noticeable in countries with a relatively young, intensive capitalist economy. But 
Alongside this objective factor, an important role was also played by the conscious, active influence of the party on the masses of women and by the specialized, systematic work which, especially in the years just before the war, was carried on energetically and thoughtfully by the party organizations of all countries. To get a fuller idea of the agitational methods of the women's socialist movement, we should examine the history of this movement in somewhat greater detail. In this instance, Germany is the most characteristic country. The others repeat, with small modifications, the experience of the German socialist movement and borrow from them the basic model for their work with the women proletariat. If England, as early as the beginning of the 19th century, was the cradle of trade union movements of women workers, the women weavers of Lancashire joined weavers trade unions as early as 1824. If in the 70s, on the initiative of Emma Patterson, a first attempt was made to unite the separate women's trade union in the League for the Protection of Women's Labor, later called the League of Women's Trade Unions Trade Union League, and in this way, link and concentrate the movement. If the English women workers were the first to go to the defense of their violated economic interests, nevertheless, it was German social democracy that carried within its womb the party political movement of women workers. However significant were the successes of the trade union organization of women workers in England, this movement bore a narrowly economic character. On the general social tasks of the liberation of women, on the vital interests of women workers as women, as mothers, there was no discussion in either the mixed or the separate women's unions, not only in England, but also in other countries, in Germany, France, America, Women workers took part in the trade union movement only for the sake of very immediate practical gains in the field of labor. All general social questions affecting the interests of women were discussed and brought forward only by the growing feminist movement. The feminist for their part, altered the demands of the women workers and presented them to the world in a distorted form in the guise of bare, lifeless formulae of absolute equality of rights between men and women in all fields of life and in all areas. And even now, the women workers movement in England still bears the imprint of this duality, whereas on economic grounds, the woman worker, as a conscious comrade, fights for the interest of her class. In the sphere of social and political ideas, the less conscious woman worker still hangs onto the skirts of the suffragettes and is ready to uphold the principle of the equality of women, albeit to the detriment of her class's interests. Now, I just want to pause there and speak for a second about that section because I think it's really important when we think about the differences between liberal girl boss, lean in kind of feminism today in the West versus this sort of more socialist feminism, a more materialist feminism that is concerned with social reproduction. Its roots really lie in this interesting distinction between the way that women workers were organizing themselves in England in the 19th century 
versus the way women workers were organizing themselves in Germany at the same time. And I think it's really interesting that I'm recording this podcast from Germany because I am, in fact, fascinated by Clarence Zetkin, August Babel, and German social democracy and the work that was happening around women's socialist organizing in Germany at this particular period of time. But what Kollontai says in this passage is that, yes, it is true that English women were organizing themselves within trade unions very early on. Obviously, England was really the first country to experience the Industrial Revolution, which pulled many women workers into the factories, as well as children. And so women were organizing themselves as workers within the trade union movement, but they were not thinking beyond very narrow economic demands. To the extent that they were thinking about women's issues more broadly in England, all of that work was being primarily done by feminists. And what happened, and what Kollontai here is saying, is that these feminists wanted this absolute equality between men and women. They, they did not want to consider differences in the roles that women played, for instance, in the family or in the process of social reproduction. And so by emphasizing equality, And by emphasizing equality, particularly of rights, like the rights to vote or the rights to own property, they were creating this division. They truly were creating this division between feminist activists and women trade unionists. And I think what Kollontai is trying to suggest here in this essay is that the, only in Germany, only in Germany in the 19th century, because of the political power of the Social Democratic Party, were the Social Democrats and the women in particular organizing under Clara Zetkin able to sort of fuse women's issues, women's needs, the things that feminists were largely concerned with, with the economic questions that the women trade unionists were concerned with. And I think this is a really important historical point because when people today criticize what is sometimes called, you know, lean-in feminism or girl-boss feminism or liberal feminism or white feminism, they, they ignore that there's this really deep history of this division that goes back really to the very beginnings of industrialization the very beginnings of industrial capitalism itself and the way that women's and workers' movements were organized differently within England and Germany. And to a large extent today, the feminist movement in the United States, I mean, not exclusively, obviously, but the dominant feminist movement and certainly the dominant image of the feminist movement is kind of the heiress to the British women's organizing, right? And in the United States as well, with the suffragists, this idea of women's rights as equal rights, access to the professions, access to property, access to the franchise, and not really thinking about these larger, broader, systemic, organizational issues of capitalism. Okay, so now back to Colin time. The women workers movement in Germany was of a completely different character. It is true that in the 1860s and 1870s, the organization of women workers also concentrated mainly on unions. But the rapid increase in female labor with the quickening tempo of capitalist development in Germany forced the young German Socialist Party to take up a definite position on relation to the question of women. Two points of view were in conflict within the workers' organizations. Some looked upon women's professional labor as an abnormal deviation from the quote-unquote natural social order, 
and hoped to force women back into the house by means of prohibitive laws. Others accepted this phenomenon as an inevitable stage, leading women to her final liberation in her capacity both as a seller of her labor and as a woman. In this context, a decisive role was played by Bebel's book, Woman and Socialism, which first came out in 1879. This book cast a bright light on the complicated problem of women and opened up new horizons to the social democrats. It established a close link between the question of women and the general class aim of the workers, but at the same time also drew attention to the needs and demands peculiar to women, the distinctive things that characterize women as a representative of her sex. This acknowledgement of the special position of woman in modern society made it necessary, without sinning against the unity of the party, to delineate a certain area of work with the women proletariat. And I just want to pause here and note that I actually wrote a little article about August Babel in Jacobin. Uh, If you're interested in reading that article, it was about how socialists have always been fighting for women's rights. I will post a link to that article in the show notes to this episode. And now back to Colin Ty. The first attempts to bring to life women's socialist organizations in Germany took place toward the middle of the 1880s. On the initiative of an ex-feminist who had gone over to the Social Democrats, societies for self-education, or women workers' clubs, were set up in Berlin. But the 1880s in Germany were a dark period when a law discriminating against socialists was in force. The police powers mercilessly destroyed these innocent organizations, whose creation had cost so much effort. The special decree of 1887 finally wiped from the face of the earth the first beginnings of women's socialist societies. So this special decree that she's talking about was an anti-socialist law that was passed by Otto von Bismarck against socialists, leading to the disbandment of many socialist organizations as well as the suppression of their publications, newspapers, etc. With the defeat of the law against socialists, the workers' movement in Germany immediately stood on firm ground. The women workers' movement was also revived. The trade unions not only gave access to women, but chose a woman as their president for the General Commission of Trade Unions. The Social Democratic Party, for its part, at the Erfurt Congress, decided to take up a completely definite position with regard to the question of women. In both previous socialist programs, those of Erfurt and Gotha, the party's attitude to the question of woman was still ill-defined. The demands affecting women were limited to general desires for the protection of female labor and the recognition of full political rights for adults, without, however, emphasizing that this last demand applied to women too. The Erfurt program of 1891 not only emphasizes the demand for political rights for all citizens without distinction according to sex, but in point five expresses a particular demand in the interests of women. And here Kolontai quotes, the abolition of all laws which place women in less favorable conditions of existence than men with regard to political or civil rights, unquote. This was an important admission. 
the Social Democratic Party in this way took upon itself the defense of the interests of the women of the working class in the widest sense of the word. Already, it was not only a question of improving women's working conditions, but also of her liberation as a citizen, as a person. Consistent with this new aim, it was necessary for the party to modify the party rules so as to leave open a place for women in party work. A resolution had already been passed at the Congress in Halle in 1890 concerning women chairmen at Congresses, which allowed these women chairmen to be elected at special women's meetings. At the Berlin Congress, the Berlin Women's Organization introduced an amendment whereby the title male confidential agent be replaced by confidential agent, which would give women access to this post. Another women's organization from Mannheim asked that agitational work with women should be extended. But the most decisive step with regard to the method chosen by the party for work with women workers was taken at the Congress at Gotha in 1896. The question raised by Clara Zetkin about the agitation with women workers set up the basis for specialized, technically separate party work with women. Drawing a boundary line between the conceptions of equality held by the bourgeois camp and by the socialist camp, Zetkin nevertheless insisted in her classically worded resolution that agitation among women should concentrate beyond the general aims of the party on a whole range of purely women's questions, protection at work, insurance for childbirth, security for children, education of children, political education of women, political equality of women, and so on. In the resolution, it was suggested that they start publishing literature, pamphlets, and leaflets, especially for women. In addition to this historic resolution, which shaped the relations of the party to the women workers' movement and its problems, at the same Congress, another three resolutions were passed, each supplementing the others, and which undoubtedly defined the party's new course in the matter of the organization of women workers. The Berlin Group's resolution suggested intensifying agitational work with women in order to draw them into unions, in view of the fact that the law forbade women to enter the party openly. The second proposal referred to the organizational sphere. It insisted on the introduction of special posts of female confidential agents in the party who would be responsible for systematic agitational work with women in order to raise their class consciousness and to draw them into the party. The third resolution proposed that several women's meetings should immediately be held in order to elect female confidential agents. The Gotha Congress officially inaugurated intra-party work for the organization of women and systematized agitation with the female proletariat. All right, I think I'm going to stop there, but I'm really excited uh, to be reading this essay and talking about the German socialist women's movement while I'm here in Germany doing some research on it. And I think that reading this history, especially as told by Kollontai, you know, we can really see that her own policies and her own thoughts and her own activities in the Soviet Union after she becomes Commissar of Social Welfare is really truly based on some of the work that she saw being done by the German Social Democrats. 
France before the First World War, particularly the work of Clara Zetkin. And, you know, these historical legacies, obviously she mentions August Babel, and, and we know from her own writings that Kolontai was very inspired and influenced by Women in Socialism, the book. In some ways, it was the book that radicalized Kolontai. And uh, in this essay, she's really talking about the importance of that text. So uh, maybe I'll even do a, a special episode on August Babel at, at some point to kind of elaborate on that article that I, I wrote in Jacobin. But until the next episode, as always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight.